The Local Youth Worker is a podcast brought to you by Reformed Youth Ministries. Since 1972, RYM has sought to reach and equip youth for Christ. And this podcast seeks to reach and equip those parents and youth workers who share that same desire. For more information on our student conferences, youth leader training, or resources, visit rym.org. Hey everybody, welcome back to another episode of The Local Youth Worker. Um, I'm joined by Tree, Triolo. Tree, how's it going? Good, how are you, John? Doing well. It's it's good to have you on and uh, to let our listeners know you're also going to be uh, one of the co-hosts of the show moving forward uh, so they can get used to your your voice. But I know you have not been on the podcast yet. You've been one of those in the back of my mind of, man, I've got to get Tree on the show and I haven't. So now here you are. Why, why don't you just let everybody know real quick where, where you are, where you're serving, all that good stuff. Yeah, it's because you told me I had a, a, a voice for radio that which means <laughs> I don't have a, a face for. Hey, no, you've uh, got both, man. People need to check that beard out um, for sure. Um, no, uh, not at all. Well, yeah, so I'm, I'm serving at a church called Westminster Presbyterian in Bryan, Texas. It's kind of right smack dab in the middle of uh, Houston, Dallas, and Austin, uh, kind of in the middle of that triad. So we're uh, right next to Texas A&M University, and I've been there about four years. All right. Yeah. And it's, uh, it's good to have you on. I didn't even realize, too, as um, you and Lynn were on last week talking about youth theater training, um, that you both are at Westminster Press. Uh, I didn't mm. even plan that, both you guys serving Westminster. Um, Tree, so you're, you're in our essentials segment, and we're talking about essentials of a youth room, um, excluding the Bible, because we know the Bible should be in every single youth room. But uh, what would you consider to be uh, an essential of a youth room? Yeah, Um as I was thinking about this question, uh, I was thinking about just the way that the room is arranged. Uh, I know Scott, a couple weeks ago, had talked about making it a, a comfortable place, a place where kids feel like it's inviting. And I think that's pretty important. So in our youth room, we've specifically uh, tried to avoid using it for our large group teaching. So mm. instead of just having a bunch of chairs facing a podium, uh, we've kind of moved our large group teaching into our fellowship hall that we use on Wednesday nights and kind of deemed that the the teaching area so that the, the youth room doesn't become this like stuffy, like, oh, that's where we're going to, to sit under pastor trees teaching for the next 25 minutes, right? Uh, so we actually uh, changed youth rooms because we had a, a, a room that was a little bit bigger that, that we could fit into. So we got a ping pong table and that kind of gave me an excuse to, to grab the bigger room this past year. So we've kind of got some couches facing a TV. We've got a ping pong table. And then we just have a couple tables kind of in a U. So it it's more of a kind of a small group or maybe even like a Bible study type area. Uh, and we specifically do that because mm-hmm. we, we want it to be this kind of more intimate uh, spot. So we do all of our large group teaching in mm-hmm. our fellowship hall, uh, but we'll do small groups. And on Sunday nights, we have a Bible study for all of our youth and we just kind of cram in there and just kind of sit around each other. So it's not uh, this upfront teaching area. It's more like a, hey, let's sit down together in a circle and and talk about some things. So I think the way that the room is set up is hugely yeah. important. It communicates something. Uh, if if it if it's just chairs facing the front, it's not super inviting. Uh, even though that is necessary. Like we, we've got to put students mm-hmm. for large group teaching. They've, they've got to be facing you, or else you'll lose them. Right. Uh, but I think the yeah. way that you arrange your youth room is actually pretty important. So uh, it's got to be comfortable, but it's also got to be uh, inviting and, and more intimate. 
Yeah, totally. Yeah. And, I, and again, I, I love that um, as we're talking about this theme of, of the youth room, j- just continue to think through kind of the, the way that the room is set up says a, a whole lot. And, and I do like, I mean, what you're saying is you've got an entirely separate room for the teaching that there is yeah. something, you know, about leaving that kind of space where, you know, you've got ping pong tables and you've got kind of the hangout, you leave that space, you go to another space. And so it just, to me, that's going to, you know, help the students kind of cue in. Okay. Kind of the, the fun and games time is kind of to the side. Now we're, we're, we're done with some of that. Let's enter into, okay. Teaching, preaching time. And, um, I think, you know, that's going to help with their focus. Um, that's mm-hmm. going to help in, in numerous ways. Cause it is, it's, it's hard to take some of the preaching and teaching serious when, you know, all the games are just right there. Um, yeah. When, the a, same when a ping pong paddle is within reach, it's, you know, distraction. <laughs> so. Absolutely. Yeah. And it's, I mean, it's similar, you know, as we go to, you know, quote unquote, big church, uh, you go into the sanctuary and I know every church is, is different. Um, but it, it signals something to us. Okay. This is a time that's set aside. Um, and so, yeah, I think that's, that's really important and, and think it's just, it's something, everyone needs to be thinking through just how is your room set up? Um, what does it look like? Does it lend itself towards these kind of um, teaching preaching? Is it too kind of lighthearted and it's hard to take you seriously when you get up to teach? So um, I think that's an important yeah, conversation for people to have. Thought, please, totally. Please uh, do. Just, just, I, I want to make sure that I, I say this because not, not every church has the same budget as other churches. So like totally setting up the room is going to look different for every church. And if, if your roof youth room, is more geared towards the large group teaching. I think that's totally fine. I just think there's things you can do with your space that, that kind of make it uh, adjustable. And I think Lynn last week uh, or a couple of weeks ago had mentioned uh, that as well, just being able to adjust that space for, for what you need for that night. So nothing wrong with the, the large group setup. Uh, we just We just purposely have tried to separate it just to kind of give it a different feel. Yeah, totally. And I'm, I'm glad you're bringing up that nuance because yeah, it's going to be different for everyone mm-hmm. and budgets and, and everything. And so just trying to think through the space that you have and utilize it um, in a unique way. Um, I think that, that's yeah important. Um, so Trudy, thank you for that. Uh, right now we have Reagan Rose, who's going to be in our technically speaking uh, section of the podcast. Uh, if you tuned in last week, you got to hear from him. Um, he uh, blogs at Redeeming Productivity. He also has a podcast as well. And uh, he wrote the the track booklet on a student's guide to gaming that everyone needs to check out. So let, let's hear from Reagan once again. I, I was going to read some questions that I've gotten from some youth workers. Uh, one of them, and like this can be for both of you guys, and it's kind of a lighthearted maybe because um, I think the youth worker was somewhat joking, <laughs> but uh, he says, give me a foolproof one-liner to make my kids realize that Grand Theft Auto is just a bad idea. <laughs> so <laughs> I, I'd love for Chris or Reagan, whoever wants to jump in on that. <laughs> and this is kind of a challenge, a one-liner, um, but but any thoughts you, you want to share there? Who wants to jump in? Is it worse than what's going on in your heart? I don't know. I don't <laughs> Yeah, I mean, it's kind of, uh, you know, uh, I'm sure he's joking, but at the same time, we know it's a very popular video game. Maybe we could just start there. Why Why do you guys think this is such a popular video game? I mean, and how many Grand Theft Autos have there been now? I'm, I'm out of the loop on it. Uh, I don't know how many iterations. There's at least that. five, but there's like an online one now. I don't know if that mm-hmm. has also five. I don't know. There's many, a lot of them. How many Fast I, I, and the Furious? By the way, I been. played the first one on PS1. Mm-hmm. I remember the, it was just like a top-down view. It was stupid but it was the same thing just you know do missions commit crimes kill innocents you know 
Vi- Vice City was the one that I actually got into. Um, and there was just, I don't know to me if I would just say the fact that, and this is where you guys can help me with the technical jargon of gaming, but you could go anywhere. Um, you could do kind of open world, open yeah. world. Thank you. I knew there was a term for that and I forgot. So I think maybe uh, because that was somewhat, uh, and again, correct me here. Was that kind of the, the pioneer in the open world gaming? Was there anything before that that you guys are aware of? Yeah, I'm not sure. I mean, even even the first one, the first two of them were for PS1, and those were pretty pretty open. You could kind of do anything, and there was things going on everywhere. I'm sure there was probably other games like that, but they were probably some of the first popular ones that really let you explore things in sort of a nonlinear way. Hmm. Gotcha. Mm-hmm. Well, I know um, a question that um, somebody uh, submitted to me, um, it says this, uh, with the rise of anxiety in our teens, uh, do video games play any role in that with our with our guys as we see girls being highly affected by Instagram in particular? Um, so again, with the rise of anxiety in our teens, do video games play any role in that um, with, with students? I'm sure they do, but maybe just kind of speaking on anxiety and the rise of anxiety and correlation there with video games. Yeah, I mean... I definitely think there's like uh, a connection because it's it's an video games are one aspect of living basically a fully digital life or like a ninety percent digital life that our our students are living right now and a lot of us too. And I think insofar as you know the same thing with Instagram creating jealousy and some of those those things that you see that, that's been well documented, especially among teen girls. I do think there's an aspect to the video games especially for young men. And I think it is related to what we talked about last last week was with the Dominion thing. I think there's a frustration that guys and girls too can experience when you're, your only creative outlet is sort of doing something that, that in the back of your mind, you know, doesn't have um, real significance in the end. You know what I mean? Like there's certain hobbies you could do that are pretty, you know, you could build a birdhouse or something like that <laughs> and you have a birdhouse afterwards. And even though that's, you know, you're not um, making an eternal change probably in the world. I do think that there's something, there's something that happens in us when we, when, when we're not finding a physical outlet for our actual creative energy. Mm. And, and I think that that could produce anxiety or even feelings of guilt sometimes. Hmm. Yeah. That, that's a good mm-hmm. point. And I love it as we're kind of already getting into this. I mean, what we're talking about, I mean, this question specifically is more aimed at, at guys. I, I'd love to to hear, and Chris, I, I want you to chime on this just as a youth worker in a, in a youth ministry. Um, I think typically when we talk about video games, we think of guys and guys spending all of their time in, in video games. But uh, I mean, I know it's popular among females as well. Um, maybe Reagan, in some of your reading, what have you seen kind of uh, – differences between guys and girls and females, um, trends, things like that. And then Chris, kind of what you're seeing firsthand with, with a youth group. Yeah. Yeah. I think statistically, I don't remember the numbers, but it is definitely on the rise every year. There's the the ratio of male to female gamers goes up on the female side. Like they, they're, they're catching up. It's not 50, 50, but there are many more um, every year that are coming in and a lot of games that are deliberately, um, welcoming that audience and a lot of streamers and, and, and YouTube personalities that are very popular female gamers that are making it 
cool to be a, a gamer as a girl and less um, stigmatized. So it's definitely on the rise. Yeah. Mm-hmm. I, I mean, I just, I was thinking about that with that last question was, um, that I think that is an assumption about gaming that it is um, gender specific, that it's only men. I mean, I found out just the other day, this person I've been playing multiplayer with on uh, Cold War Zombies, Smudgy Prism, Prism 21, shout out. Um, shout out. <laughs> I thought it was a dude, the avatar's a dude, but it's actually a girl. And I, di- I didn't know that for months, that it, it, it was actually a female. And um, it just, it kind of shocked me and hit hit me hard that, hey, you, you really don't realize who you're playing with sometimes until you turn on the microphone, thing, which I usually turn off because people are pretty graphic on the live stuff. But, hmm. like, I turn the microphone on because I had another friend come on. Smudgy Prism 21 is, like, shouting orders, knows her stuff. She's legit. Somebody I would follow into literal battle, like, really good <laughs> at what she does. Um, but, yeah, I've, I've noticed st- the statistics within my own youth groups that girls are jumping in a lot more. I don't think that was true when I was in high school in in end of the 90s, early 2000s. Like, I, I just don't think it was. So, I, I don't know. I'm sure there are statistics out there, but. Yeah. Well, I think a big aspect of it too. I'm just speculating here is the social dynamic that that online games brought to the table. Before games were online, uh, it was a pretty isolated thing. You'd play with your your buddies, or you know, even if girls did play. Yeah. But there's there's definitely a social aspect to it now um, that that didn't exist before. Yeah, and that's something I want us to dig into. Um, I, I did. I want to say I had another question, kind of re- related to anxiety, and so I would just since we're here. Um, let me just go ahead and read this and who knows, we might've already kind of answered it. Um, but he's talking about a psychologist here. cannot remember his name. He says, um, but he says that everyone needs, you know, a few go-to activities to relieve stress, kind of maybe some of what we were talking about just a minute ago. Um, but he says many students play video games in response to anxiety. Problem is video games trigger a similar dopamine response to gambling. Uh, so it becomes an escape more than a stress reliever and can actually increase stress. So what's a you know recommended healthy amount of video games and does the answer change if the games are more social, um, talking to friends while playing? Look, there's a lot there. <laughs> um, yeah. But what are just kind of some some knee-jerk thoughts as I, I read mm-hmm. that and I can reread it um, if you need me to. You know, John, Weird is it question. like when I think about video games, I'm not saying this just to defend myself or anything, but I think about it in the same way as movies. I mean, there's a dopamine release whenever you watch movies that are exciting too. I mean, and probably the same way that you moderate your movie watching and other consum- you know, consuming other forms of media is probably the same track or path you're going to take as far as uh, working and walking and guiding your kids and even yourself through a healthy measure of video gaming, I guess. So I, I don't know if the rules necessarily change as far as how you're discipling or guiding your kids or walking with, if you're in youth ministry, how you'll address video games. I don't think it's going to change in a significant amount. The thing that's scarier to me about video, or not maybe not scarier, but it makes me pause a little bit more about video games is they tend to be the thing that parents are pushing their kids towards so that those video games are doing, fill in the time of parenting so that parents can do their own thing. And so any media source that parents are happily pushing their kids towards so as to relegate their responsibility as parents uh, is an unmonitored, anonymous, available, accessible problem potentially. And I would say Mm -hmm. that those are kind of some of the 
those are some of the red flags that raise up in my mind. The questions or things that need to be addressed within a, a family or within a, like a youth minister needs to be thinking in those terms. Yeah. Yeah. Reagan, I'd love for you to, to respond as well. Yeah. And, and I would agree with that. I think that, I think that the, the monitoring and, and kind of setting a time limit is a wise approach. It is true. The guy he that the the question asker might have been referring to. There's a guy, Mark D. Griffith, Griffith or Griffiths, who's done a bunch of research. He originally worked in the world of of gambling addiction, and then he kind of pivoted to video game addiction, and he's written a bunch of that, uh, a bunch of studies showing that there are very very similar responses happening psychologically with the the dopamine release with the kind of the reward and and the the ups and downs the same way that you know when you pull the lever on a on a slot machine and so i would just say with that is you just have to treat it with more caution again i don't think that we should be anti video game but if something in our lives has the potential to master us we should just treat it with a little bit more respect and a little bit mm-hmm. more um, caution. And so knowing that, hey, this this is, and the research shows that it's more likely that I could get addicted to, to a, a, a video game than I could to a movie, doesn't mean don't play the video games at all. You can get addicted to a lot of stuff. You can get addicted to stamp collecting. Um, I, I'm not. I don't care for postage. But I love it. I love it. I Throw in shade to stamp collectors. Look at you. <laughs> We're just going to stage an intervention here for John. The stamp collecting problem. Your tongue is raw. Say, <laughs> <laughs> Your tongue is raw. You're hurting people around you. <laughs> yeah, I would just say you just got to treat that with some caution. You know, the same way with, with other stuff. You know, um, there's probably... Maybe this is a bad illustration, but I mean, there's differences of opinion on, on alcohol within the church, but I don't believe it. drinking alcohol is a sin, but you treat it with more respect mm-hmm. because you know that there's the potential to to addict there. So mm-hmm. I think you should treat video games with more respect and a little bit more caution um, because they are sort of uh, similar to, to gambling. They can draw you in and keep you. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And, and something I'm thinking of is you're, is you're saying all of that is um, Adam Alter's book, Irresistible. Um, and he, you know, talks a lot about social media and and really, you know, some of the gaming that's involved in social media and just the, the um, uh, not devices, but the strategies that uh, many uh, companies are employing to try to keep you, you know, on your phone and to make it mm-hmm. irresistible. And so some of that comes to mind. And as we're wrapping this up, you know, I'm thinking, okay, definitely, you know, we're talking about stewardship here and um, time limits, I think are kind of the obvious, one of the obvious ways to kind of steward these good gifts and to set time limits and to be cautious. And I think kind of a a sub point to that that you're bringing up is um, to be sobered to the reality that these things are powerful. And so kind of entering it with caution, realizing that these uh, games do have the ability to addict us. But Chris and, and Reagan, um, whoever wants to jump in first, what, what do you think are some other strategies to employ to, to steward games wisely, to appreciate them wisely, besides just setting time limits? Um, whoever wants to jump in, who's, who's got some thoughts? You know, when you, whenever this, the I think it was the, the first segment, uh, what was really encouraging was, Reagan, like you jumped straight to the positives of gaming. And I think uh, being fair with kids, and with if, if you're a parent listening, being fair with your children. There's some ridiculously good art. Like, I really do think that the um, 
the the place where a lot of good story and art is going to be on display is in gaming in the future. Really, I mean, if you pay attention to the to the storylines of the campaigns and things like that. So I think highlighting the positives of gaming is a really good tool. If a parent sits down and says, "Yo, this is beautiful artwork. Who's the designer? Like, who's the creator of this? What company created it? Like, have they created other games?" And starting an honest, fair, positive conversation with kids or even with youth directors, not just saying gaming's stupid, you're wasting your time, you're burning your brains out. But being positive and moving in towards it that way, uh, you get more flies with honey than you do with vinegar type thing. Uh, moving towards it that way, I think, is I've found has been very beneficial for me. Yeah, I'd echo that. And even playing games, you know, whether you're, if you're, your youth worker playing games with your students, your parents playing games with the kids, just to understand their world a little bit more. It's a really fun thing to sit down and play together and, and be on a mission together. And that, that can give you a little bit more sensitivity about why, why, why it's so fun and, you know, what maybe some of the potential pitfalls are and how you can kind of uh, steer them away. Uh, if there's, if there's certain games that the content is, is, not befitting what a Christian should be consuming, or if there's an inordinate amount of time being spent on it. I think that's really big, um, playing with them, setting time limits, and just evaluating content too. I think that's really important. We talked about that a little bit at the beginning with the violent stuff, but just just know this: the stuff in games, like there is a rating system, the ESRB rating system, um, but the same thing with movies. You just need you need to do a little bit of research sometimes. Find out what what is in these games. What is it? Is it stuff that uh, that is um, you know going to be not glorifying to God? Is it going to be stuff that's that celebrates sin? That kind of stuff I think is important as you're evaluating what games you'll actually play. Yeah, no, that that's uh, there's a lot of good stuff there, and I'm thinking you know as my oldest son is really into. Fortnite. There's been times where he's just said, you know, Dad, would you watch me play? And um, I need to do that more. I've sat down with him a handful of times, but there's something about, you know, entering into their world, um, trying to understand it, uh, being able to talk a little bit more educated <laughs> about it. Um, that, that's a that's a very important thing. And so parents listening, um, youth workers listening, to, trying to figure out ways in which you can kind of enter into their world, um, I, I think is a, a very significant um yeah, a tool, if you want to use it that way, of uh, uh, discipling your student or, or, or child. Um, and, like, this is something I, I want to pick up with more um, next week as well, is uh, talking more specifically to, to parents and maybe some strategies there, um, as, as well as just kind of the social aspect that we keep uh, talking about. So let, let's pick up there next week. All right, that was Reagan. Uh, once again, he will be with us uh, next week. Uh, but for now, we've got Reverend Joe Novenson coming on, and I'm still here with with Tree uh, Triello. Uh, Tree, have you gotten to hear Joe Novenson before? I mean, he's he's a guy that I know many people know. Um, I know in PCA circles, maybe not outside PCA as much. But have you been able to hear? I have, I have. I've really, really appreciated just the wisdom that Joe shares. I uh, heard him speak at Wild Tea a few years ago, and uh, tuned in for the. Uh, the online seminar that he did for leaders uh, during COVID. And it was such a, a, a benefit and, and blessing to me. Joe's the way he, he communicates his wisdom. It's just like sitting with your grandfather telling stories. So I, I always appreciate him. Oh yeah. No, that, that's, 
That's definitely right. And um, our listeners will, will find out, actually, we've got Joe on this week and we've got him on next week. I just ran out of time with him. Uh, we, were, we were talking and there were so many other questions. And so he was gracious to stay on. And so we've got a portion of that interview today, but we'll um, also hear that again uh, next week as he gets into some some other aspects of, of the ministry. But for now, here's Joe Novenson. Pastor Joe, uh, welcome back to the podcast. It's good to have you again. It's an honor to be here. It really is. I really looked forward to, to talking to you last time. I look forward to this uh, conversation. Since it has been a while, why don't you just update our listeners on where you're currently living, uh, what you're currently doing? I'm living where I've been for uh, 26 years. I'm on Lookout Mountain in Tennessee. I've had the privilege of serving on the staff here during that time, but I uh, stepped down from being lead pastor three years ago, and one of the other members of our staff stepped up, and I'm presently pastor to senior members. And at Lookout, uh, there are over 300 members over 65 years of age. So I'm uh, loving being with them. When you when you're in a place for this long, the relational depth that you can develop is thrilling. So I get to be with people who have been and still are my heroes hmm. for these years and try to give to them a little bit of what they gave me when I arrived here at 42 years of age and had no business being their pastor. Um, but they have been really uh, wonderful friends for all these years. Wow. Uh, yeah, that is and an awesome testimony. I don't know too. I mean, we were talking a little pre-recording. Do you want to share just some of the insight of of being in some place for 26 years? Just some of the things that the Lord is is teaching you. Yeah, I I would um, I would say one of the unexpected blessings. I'll call it a severe mercy of staying in a place where you've served and having the privilege of stepping down from being the lead pastor, but still being full-time on the staff, is that I get to sit in the same meetings that I once uh, chaired and, and now have the leisure of heart and the ability to see what I didn't do and um, perhaps did wrong and be able to watch as it's modeled in a different way. And that's simultaneously really sobering and really um, helpful, purging, uh, mm-hmm. cleansing. Um, I think that often older pastors in my age bracket will go off and teach everything they've done right. And it seems that Jesus wants me to look at everything I've done wrong and become a deep, fast, big repenter. And um, that's not bad, um, but it is, you have to have a big view of the gospel to walk that path and, um, and a wonderful wife. <laughs> <laughs> that's such a good word. I like how you worded that a severe mercy, um, that it's a mercy from the Lord, but can be, be hard. Um, but thank you for, for sharing that. And uh, like you said, yeah, a big gospel, um, a view of the a big gospel. Um, so thank you for that. That word, um, Joe, and I told you this at the beginning, it's going to be weird for me to call you Joe, but you encourage that. So I'll call you Joe. 
Um, you know, many people know you as, as pastor, as you just said, for, for 26 years in this one place, but I know South Carolina prior to that, um, people have seen you as a conference speaker as well, but only a few know Joe, the teenager. Um, so I'd love for you to tell us just a bit about uh, your teenage years, you know, even how, how would those around you, your family and friends describe you as what, what kind of a, a teenager you were? Mm. Um, I grew up in a home that uh, was not at all oriented toward things of faith. Um, I'm probably the closest I'll ever come to being famous was my father was the original producer of a television show, which in the 50s and 60s was famous, uh, called American Bandstand. And it was um, the early fusion of music and television. And um, none of the men who, like my father, were involved in its creation had any idea of what they were doing culturally. The exponential fame, acceleration, impact um, that we associate now so much with the entertainment culture, I got to watch sort of explode out of Pandora's box. And... um, that's my dad's phrase. He felt like he had opened Pandora's box and he couldn't get anything back in the box. Hmm. Um, the speed with which we lived, uh, sort of the pace of our family life was intense. And my mother and my father loved me and I loved them. But a lot of what you will see in front of the camera now um, was going on behind the camera and just wasn't um, permitted in front of it. And I saw all of the difficulties that um, we're just so familiar with now um, going on and listened to them just outside my bedroom door when I would go to bed at night and there was a party at the house. So I grew up uh, in that atmosphere and was uh, very much into the music culture as a teenager. I got to see uh, Jimi Hendrix, The Doors, uh, Pink Floyd, um, uh, <laughs> Steppenwolf. My dad got tickets to all the concerts. And um, that's unreal. I, I followed Eric Clapton through all his iterations and um, Saw Cream and Delaney and Bonnie and Blind Faith and. Um, Derek and the Dominoes, and uh, it was just wonderful to, you know, get a front row seat to all of this. And um, yet, though it looked great from the outside, um, on the inside, I could see the pain of my father. I could see the pain of my mother. They could see the pain in each other. They didn't know what to do with it. I didn't know what to do. With it. And um, and I just had this nagging pain. Um, this is not the way it's supposed to be. And what I mean by that in specific was, you know, I'd see people become <laughs> very wealthy. Uh, I just have a copy of a contract that my dad signed when um, Smokey Robinson and the Miracles came on to um, bandstand. Wow. <laughs> my dad's initials are on it. And the amount they got paid was $395. <laughs> but, but in the 50s, that was a lot of money. Sure. <laughs> um, 
so they became wealthy fast and they didn't know what to do with it. And dad saw that. And so the pain was something's not right. Um, there is quote success, but there's not success. There's fame, but this isn't good. There was just a dissonance. And in the middle of all that, um, young life came to my high school. And um, I really believe a revival that was part of the Jesus movement broke out in my high school. And I got tricked into going to a Young Life meeting. Um, and uh, I went and I was really mad that I'd been tricked into going. Um, it just, you know, it really was a uh, bait and switch. So the first going was not really registering to me very much. Although I did see a girl there that um, I was impressed with, who I eventually tried to pick up at a dance and um, she wouldn't pick <laughs> because she was a believer and I wasn't. And that was very evident to her by the way I was treating her during the dance. And um, that woman would eventually become my wife. Wow. Uh, so I, I sort of would say, I'm the young man every mother hopes their daughter never brings home. <laughs> I'm that guy. Um, and that's the truth. After getting to know Barb, she basically said, if you ever want to see me, I'll be at Young Life meetings and you can see me at my house. And so I'd go to her house and I'd go to Young Life meetings. And while I was falling in love with her, I was also falling in love with the master she was following. And I didn't know that, but I'd never met anyone like her. Never. Um, you know, it sounds like I'm overstating it, but even in high school, there was a moral nobility and beauty to her that was really attractive by the way she treated people like few people I knew. And along with just being beautiful, she was internally radiant. And um, I would learn later it was because she was saved. And um, so I lingered at her home and at Young Life meetings for a year. And, um, and then she invited me to go on a retreat which I thought was what armies did when they chickened out. I didn't know that that was a <laughs> spiritual thing to do. And um, so I went and uh, I was ready by God's grace on that, on that time. But I really did not go with any expectation of this being significant to me personally. I, I was as surprised at my conversion as she was. And that was my junior year of high school. So wow. until that time, I would have been probably characterized as, uh, you know, a, a nice guy who was afraid of conflict and tried to neither be, um, I, I tried not to fit in any one group at my high school at the time. The groups were pretty clear. Um, and I just didn't feel like I fit in any of them. And some of that was insecurity. A lot of it was just plain out terror fear. I would learn later how frightened a man I was 
as an adult and was shown just how frightened I was as a child. And the last thing I'll say is I managed that fear by, I think, social charm. Um, but when you grow up as I did, my parents were so successful. I was sort of an afterthought in the home. I had an older sister who was in launch and she was of an age where American bandstand and all that fit her. I was a kid, I was in elementary school. So I was sort of a, an afterthought and the results were I raised myself. Hmm. So I was always afraid that I wasn't right. I, 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 how do I know I belong here? How do I know this is the right thing to do? Because I was calling the shots. So all I knew to do was to be sort of nice so that if I was wrong, I could quickly recover. Hmm. And that's how I survived. Um, it, so niceness was my shield, not really my character. And um, most often that would be shown that if I got really assailed, I would just shut down. The fear would absolutely overwhelm me. You ever seen a hairless cat? Mm -hmm. And when I look at them, I just like, oh my God, those are an unusual creatures you made. <laughs> um, I felt like a hairless cat in the corner of a room when I was really opposed. The fear would just paralyze me. And so coming to faith in my junior year of high school, I felt like I, I was able to take a deep breath. Wow. Someone, someone wanted me. I would have never called it the doctrine of election. But boy, I want to tell you, do I love that doctrine? <laughs> I, um, that. I, I really do, because uh, to this day, when I come to the Lord's table, I almost involuntarily, it just comes out of my mouth. I'm home. I'm finally home. I know I know where I'm wanted, and uh, I don't. I don't understand why he wants me, mm -hmm. but I I know he wants me, mm -hmm. so I'm glad to be home. So that's maybe more than you wanted to hear. Now that that is uh, excellent. I'm kind of like I don't stop, keep going. Um, but but you you did mention you said you you kind of struggled to to fit into one particular group, and then you said you kind of wore niceness as a shield just curious how, how do you think your fellow classmates as well as your your teachers would have described what kind of teenager you were i think similarly sort of an innocuously nice um average probably not almost unseen um almost sort of grayish brown in the background sort of a person um when I was my senior year, the concert choir director asked me to participate in the leadership of the concert choir. And I remember saying, like, are you sure? Like, why would you ask me? It was just, hey, I couldn't even understand why you would even think of that. It was the first time that anybody trusted me with, quote, leadership. 
and um, it wore very uncomfortable on my shoulders. But it was also a time when I began to sense this weird, because I, I just became a Christian. I sensed this weird, this doesn't wear right, but I think this is something that's a part of me. I, I didn't sense any calling, but I didn't want to throw it off either. And I was like, why do I feel that? I'm no leader. And um, I, I can remember various times when in that position, I was, I was at a place where I had to take a moral stand and I had to face my fear. I cry, even remember him now. I had to face my fear and say, but Christ would want this. So I have to do this. And, um, and having to stand all alone and say that has to be okay. That has to be okay. And then running to the girl that I was dating now named Barb, who would become my wife and saying, okay, tell me we're not crazy because this was really an expensive thing to do right now. I think I've lost friends and gained enemies, but um, this was right. So please tell me that this is in the Bible. right? Um, and she was because of being so much more mature than I ever to this day. am. I mean, I look up to my wife. Um, she would often be the one to say, yeah, this is what he taught. And um, he sustained you and he'll keep doing that. So innocuous teenager was what I think I, I was. Hmm. Yeah. Well, and that's something I want to come back to kind of the reluctant leadership um, there and kind of that early sense of a call, but first just, you know, major milestone for teenagers uh, is learning to drive and, and getting their first car. And so I'm curious, what, what, what do you remember about those early days of, of learning to drive a car? And uh, Oh man, that? my dad, 68 Impala. <laughs> <laughs> Um, that's what I learned to drive. Uh, I, that's the car I was driving when I learned. And then um, Barb, her dad bought her a 1968 Dodge Dart Slant 6. I mean, that that engine, you couldn't kill that engine. Um, <laughs> it, was, it was a well-designed car. And um, we drove it for many years after we married. I don't know how many hundreds of thousands of miles that thing had on it, but mm. um, when I started to drive, the big thing in my uh, neighborhood was drag racing. And there was a section of uh, highway being built called the Blue Route. And we used to take our cars up and, you know, put your foot on the brake and rev the engine until you've almost blown the transmission and take your foot off the brake. And, you know, most of us just had, had a, a six-cylinder, but my dad had a, had a V8. And you'd put glass pack mufflers to make it sound like a woulda, woulda. Oh, wow. But that's, you know, that's what a car sounds like when you pull up to the stoplight and it goes woulda, 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 woulda. <laughs> and, uh, but it, it really wasn't a big engine. And then if dad had let me, I, he never did. I wanted to put a four-barrel. And it was, it was just a two barrel, but never let me put a four barrel mm. carburetor on the, uh, on it. Um, 
but that was a big deal when I was was growing up. And um, later, um, had that '68 Dodge Dart until I believe we kept it into maybe the 19, certainly into the late '70s, maybe early '80s, and um, it just wouldn't die. <laughs> I gave it away to a member of the youth group that I was serving. Oh, wow. And he sold it and it just broke my heart. Oh. It just. It's like a member just, of the family. Uh, yeah. I actually remember who it was. <laughs> <laughs> and, um, but yeah, that was. So my first car would have been the 1968 Dodge Dart that my wife owned and I became a part of when we married. Now, with that. I've had an A-track player in it. And what, what would you have been listening to? Just that, curious. I was far too advanced. <laughs> um, I was still spinning vinyl, man. Okay. Um, I've given away a lot of my records because my dad worked at Bandstand. I had albums before anybody else did. Oh, I, I had the Beatles, imagine. I had the Beatles White Album before it was out. <laughs> wow. And you want to talk about make yourself popular. <laughs> just, <laughs> I had George Harrison's first solo uh, multiple work when that came out. I remember people coming to the house to listen. So I really had a pretty extensive album collection that since I've, I've had friends that I knew really loved rock music history and I gave them to them and said, here, Give them a good home. And wow. um, so I would, my, before I was converted, um, I mean, I really loved great rock and roll. And when, when people say, what, what is that? <laughs> <laughs> you know, I, I, I love Derek Clapton. Uh, to this day, I, he stuns me. I love watching him with B.B. King when they, on the PBS special, when they're together and seeing Eric just defer to BB, that's beautiful. Um, I, so I really enjoyed um, watching him go through all the different changes he went through. And then um, this memory, there's a PBS special when um, Led Zeppelin gets the Kennedy Center Award. And they're sitting, of course, in the famous balcony with the medals on. And they're watching, um, oh, I can't remember who it was that does the cover of Stairway to Heaven. I can't remember, but it's two females. And um, they knock it out of the park. And watching, <laughs> watching Jimmy Page I mean, who would want to play guitar in front of Jimmy Page? Oh, no. Yeah, no way. You know, it, I just, first of all, I, I, I wouldn't even walk out on the stage, <laughs> let alone try and sing like plant. I mean, it's just not, you know, what voice is like that? But they were nailing it. And you could watch the faces of the Led Zeppelin members. One of them, of course, is, had passed. The drummer's mm -hmm. passed. But the drummer's son was playing on the cover band. And all of the members of the, the band are getting deeply moved. And when they finish, they stand 
and they're actually very emotional over it. And I thought being a band member and just playing and seeing your heroes rise to their feet, emotional and commending you, what would it be like for the master to look at a redeemed sinner and say, you did good. You did good. And so I'm watching PBS crying my eyes out. And my wife was going, this is Led Zeppelin. <laughs> and I'm going, yeah, but I'm not thinking Zeppelin. <laughs> it really, but I, those were the groups I listened to. When I became a Christian, I, I knew I was far too into music. And I had to make a, a, a major turn. Um, so I tried to pull away until I could get my spiritual feet underneath me. And then I became a John Denver fan. Talk about whiplash. <laughs> Country <laughs> roads. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And um, I saw him when he played in a small club and um, he had just written, in fact, uh, Country Roads and Sunshine on My Shoulders. And when I heard them in that little club, which sat about 200. I turned to Barb and I said, this is the last time we'll see him here. Those songs are going. Wow. You know, I could, I could feel my bandstand roots coming out. I said, that's money right there. I mean, he's going to become famous. And he did. Wow. And the rest, the next time I saw him was in the Spectrum in Philadelphia. And saw him there several times. Um, so I... That was a change that I made and I started playing folk music and trying to learn it. And I was trying to temper my inner man because I was so, I just, you know, music was almost everything to me. Hmm. And I was trying to demote it. I didn't, I wouldn't have used that phrase, but I was trying to demote it and promote Christ and so I was almost intentionally listening to music that I wouldn't have liked a couple of years ago <laughs> so that I could turn myself. And um, that, that was my, my teenage years. And then I started listening to uh, folk music and really started to love classic folk, um, even work songs, freedom songs, um, labor songs, sea shanties, a lot of the really the roots of folk music and um, started singing and writing music and singing in a Christian coffee house. And um, that became a big part of my life as well. When I got engaged to Barb, I bought her an engagement ring and she bought me a Martin guitar because she knew we'd never be able to afford it. Mm -hmm. And um, I kept it until just recently and gave it to my son-in-law. And um, he's director of worship and music here at Lookout. <laughs> I said, oh, wow. let her rip. <laughs> you, know, <laughs> you play it now. And um, that's when they still had lifetime guarantees for Martin guitars so that wow. I can take it back and get it repaired for the rest of my life. Wow, that's amazing. I don't think they do that anymore. <laughs> Joe, I know we're, we're about to need to take a quick break, but before we get there, I'd love for you to just 
uh, think about taking teenage Joe out for a cup of coffee. Um, and, and what's something you think uh, you needed to hear back then um, as a teenager, some, some truth you would love to share with your teenage self? Oh, I'm sorry if I cry as I say this. Mm-hmm. Um, that the beginning of wisdom is the fear of the Lord. And if that's true, and it is, then being afraid of anything else other than the Lord is the beginning of stupidity. And um, since I started to learn how frightened I was, I've thought a lot about those, because that, that refrain is in different, different forms in different places in the scripture. And um, once again, I, I always see very visually rather, and I, when I see a concept in a metaphor, I can hold the concept better. So here, here's what I would want to have said to me as a teenager. As you grow up, you're going to want to go through, go see the 2005 King Kong remake of the 1933 black and white. And you need to watch the scene when Naomi Watts plays Ann Darrow and she's been delivered from being attacked by three T-Rexes. And now only one has survived Kong and he's coming after her and she's running and she's running away from the T-Rex and Kong leaps over both of them and lands in a thunderous, you know, typical, approach, pounds on his chest, and Ann Darrow is standing right in between a T-Rex that wants to eat her, and Kong, who she's realizing, I think he's my friend, Hmm. and she's scared of both of them, and she's looking at two beings she's terrified of. One wants to eat her, and she thinks one has become her friend. And she backs up underneath Kong's legs. Kong takes out the Rex and picks up Andaro and puts her on his shoulder and starts leaping through the jungle. And Peter Jackson zooms in on Anne's face in awe at this, this being who's the top of the food chain likes me and just saved my life. I would want teenage Joe to know the one who made the food chain loves you and killed his son to make you his. So stop being afraid of everything else. Because it's big and it's scary, but it ain't any match for the one who made the food chain. And he is your friend. All right. Just a reminder, Joe will be back again next week. Um, He's going to talk more specifically about ministry. He was talking about his his teen years uh, this week. But we're going to look at just various aspects of ministry from friendship to taking time off and, and getting rest. And I know you all will enjoy that. So be sure to tune back in next week. Oh, come and
Without money, oh, come and feast without.